Hello and welcome to Special Ed Rising No Parent Left Behind. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm your host, Mark Ingracia, and I have been an active member in the field of special education for 35 years as a classroom teacher, tutor, parent trainer, consultant, and advocate. This is a podcast for parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities as an information hub and promoter for the advancement of people with disabilities in all areas of life. So if you're interested in learning more about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more, this is the place for you. If you like the show, please subscribe, like, comment, and tell your friends about it. In this episode, I'll be speaking with two presenters for the upcoming Weinfeld Education Group's Diamonds in the Rough virtual conference and speaker series. Diamonds in the Rough, which is being held this year on October 20th and 21st, is WEG's annual conference in the Metro Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area for families of students with special learning needs in pre-K to 12 and the educators and professionals who work with them. This event assembles national and regional experts to present valuable research, information, and strategies to help children with a variety of learning challenges to reach their potential. The two-day schedule features a professional training webinar workshop with CEU credits on Friday. The full-day general conference convenes virtually on Saturday, offering an inspirational keynote speaker and several interactive training sessions from which to choose. Each year, the conference is built around a theme unique to the special needs community. The 2023 theme is Illuminating a Brighter Future for All Students. For more information and to register for this important event, go to wegdiamonds.com, wegdiamonds.com. I'll post the link on the resource page of my website and in this episode's description. With me today are co-presenters Joan Green and Adam Pletter, who will also be giving the keynote address. Joan Green has provided forward-thinking speech therapy services for the past 30-plus years. She received her undergraduate and graduate education at Northwestern University in Evanstown, Illinois. After spending time working for others in hospitals, rehabilitation centers, and home care, she formed Innovative Speech Therapy in the Washington, D.C. area in 1992. She has an eye out for affordable, cutting-edge technologies to help others thrive in life and offer families and colleagues uniquely effective online tech advising and coaching services to streamline the selection and implementation of devices, apps, features, and strategies to promote learning and well-being. Dr. Adam Pletter is an internationally recognized child-adolescent psychologist and digital parenting expert. He received his doctoral degree from George Washington University in 2001 and specializes in the treatment of children, adolescents, and young adults in his Bethesda, Maryland office. As a licensed clinical psychologist working with families at the outset of the early 2000s digital culture shift, Dr. Pletter developed a parenting approach combining behavior modification theory with parental control systems to better support mental health and child development. So now, with the help of modern technology, won't you please join me in welcoming Joan and Adam to the podcast for another win. Hello, Joan. Hello, Adam. How are you? Great. Great. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with the two of you. Since the focus of the presentation is technology, uh, why don't we begin there and 
perhaps you could both share how you came to focus on technology in your work. And maybe, Joan, you could start with. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, I'm, I'm officially a speech pathologist. Um, over the years, I've, I've focused more and more on tech. But back in the mid-80s is when I started at Fairfax Hospital as a speech pathologist. And back then, I really didn't use much technology. I mean, a little bit of word processing. Um, but I worked a lot with stroke and head injury adults was my primary focus. And I became aware that I needed ways to find, um, to offer these patients ways to practice between my sessions. And back then in the late 80s, let's say, software was coming out. I might have paid $100 for some software to teach English as a second language. And it was really good. And they were so grateful to be able to practice, especially the outpatients. They would practice two and three hours a day. And I saw, and they got that instant non-judgmental feedback. And it was created for adults, not kids. So it wasn't too juvenile. And I think that's really what started me on this road of always searching for ways for people to help themselves maximize goals. And then just jump forward, you know, into the 90s, I started having my kids. I have four kids. They're 24 to 30 now. And when they were young, I couldn't help all of them with their homework. So I would put my kids on Bailey's Book House and Sammy's Science House and all, all this software that was so good for them. And as I started helping other students, because, you know, I, I got to know a lot of young parents with young kids that wanted more speech therapy, I... I bet even back then I started recommending software for them. Hmm. And then now I ended up uh, opening up an assistive technology center. And I don't even know when that was probably about 20 years ago. And I had, I paid $500 for a touchscreen and hundreds of dollars for speech to text and word prediction software. And now all of that software, everything is included on my phone and on my tablet and on my computer. <laughs> So now I don't need an assistive technology center. I have just special digital pens and everything else is just right with me in my bag. Wow. So I, I've just seen enormous potential for technology to help all kinds of people of all ages and challenges. And I see it as um, underused. Mm-hmm. I don't think most people realize the potential of technology to help them reach their goals. So that's become my my sole focus is the use of technology. I don't even do too much speech therapy anymore. I wow. help integrate technology into what everybody's already doing. And it's fascinating to hear you say that in a day where technology seems to be leading everyone <laughs> in their daily lives, right? That it's still something that people don't have a, a real good grasp on. How did it feel when you were starting out? And also the price of things. I mean, that didn't dissuade you from, from doing it. I was convinced, and I've written four books about assistive technology, and and the first couple were more geared toward the professionals, but people, um, I tried, I was convinced it was the right thing before it became popular to do, and I think that I had to convince speech pathologists and schools, um, like graduate programs for speech pathologists, that it wasn't cheating. It wasn't that the therapists were going to let the apps do all the work for them. It was just another tool. Mm-hmm. that we could use and then save our time as professionals um, to do what technology can't do. And I think the same is true today. Mm-hmm. I don't think that tech is going to get rid of teachers or therapists or speech pathologists, but it'll let us do what we do better that can't be replicated, and then it'll all um, maximize progress. Right. Adam, can you explain your entry into the area? Yeah, sure. 
this idea of enhancements and accommodations is what jumps out at me that, you know, yes, tremendous potential. And, you know, uh, in the, in the, in the 90s, I can't go as far back as the 80s, but <laughs> in the 90s, I was in high school and in college. And I remember um, specifically in college, a roommate of mine who was more into computers than I was at the time, I'm talking early 90s, you know, showed me this World Wide Web and you know and that was right when email was starting and like it was this just like way of connecting with people and fast forward into the later 90s uh, i was in graduate school and you know email and some online research was a thing at that time as i was getting my doctorate um, i started my private practice in 2001 and we just start to think through the timeline of when things really started to get more advanced and more um well, i'll say smaller uh, more portable microchips, everything started to mm-hmm. condense everything down um, right as I was starting my private practice, which simultaneously, within a few years, converged with becoming a parent myself. Um, and, you know, 2004. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's right before the iPhone, before the iPad, before all of the, you know, uh, convergence of these pocket-sized computers and just the amount of laptops that were uh, inundating in a very positive and concerning way uh, in our families. So again, a lot of my parenting work in my office at the time started to shift to how, you know how do we manage video game times and tantrums you know when they're right. getting off their gaming consoles at the time. Uh, that's where a lot of my clinical work started to shift, and I developed this program that you know later became iParent 101 which is a big piece of my consulting uh, piece of my job now, um, where I try to help uh, mostly parents and professionals and educators and some tech companies who are doing good kind of think through how to support our families and Mm -hmm. teachers uh, more effectively. And so I'm always looking at the line between what is clearly problematic use that is almost universal at you know for most people that I know personally and professionally, mm-hmm. um, and the enhancements that they're getting from the technology on almost every facet of our lives. Do you want to extrapolate a little bit more about the iParent? You know, the program itself came out of my clinical work helping families. You know, kind of this three-step process of getting a, a clear sense of, okay, we have technology in our family. It's, it's a great thing. It helps us uh, in many, many, many ways uh, in almost every area of, my, of our lives. Uh, and from a young age, it has a lot of pull. And, you know, one of my favorite executive functions, prefrontal cortex uh, functions, is prioritizing. And so a lot of what I try to help parents do is instead of being reactive, oh, we have a problem here. We can't get Jimmy off the Xbox or Jimmy is upstairs on his iPad watching something we don't even know what he's watching. Um, You know, trying to get ahead of that as proactively as possible, laying out clear expectations as young as possible having some ability to set enforceable limits so there's right. some boost in structure and predictability of what's going to be happening within the family on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. all aimed at evolving forward um, as the child grows, can demonstrate more appropriate safe behavior that they're getting more and more access. And the clear analogy that I always use is learning to drive a car, you know, which is another piece of technology that 
we sort of just accept as these right. huge machines that help us uh, with transportation are clearly very dangerous, you know, state the obvious. Yeah. And there's a lot of laws and rules and regulations that go back decades, state-run rules that help parents know how to navigate that beneficial and dangerous uh, landscape. And so it's kind of the same basic model with iParent 101, where I try to help them parents have clear expectations. I talk a lot about media plans. I used to talk about contracting, but that word um, never really sat well with me, even though it is an agreement. It's more of a media plan. This is what we're expecting. These Mm -hmm. are the clear expectations and structure, and we're going to evolve forward, up and down. I use a ladder system, like an old behavior modification system, Mm -hmm. um, different levels, and as the child demonstrates more appropriate behavior, they get more access over time. Mm-hmm. Not just what they say, but what they do. Right, right. Humans learn by doing with practice. Mm-hmm. So I, what are they demonstrating is what I would focus on. Sorry. Okay. I like it. And can you find success when you start with kids who are older, maybe in their middle school grades, teens, you know, it's great when we can start and we can get the kids right off the bat, right? Can you discuss how you approach it differently? Well, the middle school age and maybe even later elementary now, you know, we are moving forward here and post, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, post-pandemic world now where thankfully we had all of this digital communication and connections and access, information access. There's much, 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 much more um, access now um, that helped us function during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So middle school, late elementary school is that time where parents start to at least in my office and, you know, on the side of a baseball field where I spend a lot of time um, uh, watching my kid, um, uh, you know, parents, when they hear about what I do, are always talking about, um, oh, what about this? What about that? How are you supposed to manage this? And middle school is that magic age as the child very appropriately is seeking out more independence through school, most, if not all of their school, depending on their school district and curriculum, Mm -hmm. is on some type of screen, which we'll talk more about, um, for good and bad. Uh, And so that is the time where parents get more reactive, where, oh, oh, we're we're seeing uh, what I've been hearing about that I've been trying to just avoid because the parents (laughs) themselves are inundated in positive and negative ways with their jobs. And this is our world now, you know, so yes, it's way better um, to start for younger families out there, um, way better to have at least some discussion around this as early as possible, which we could talk more about. Mm -hmm. Um, but in middle school, that is that sort of time, um, where we can't put toothpaste back in the tube, you know, try, but it's a mess. Uh, but we can have moving forward, ever forward, hashtag ever forward. Um, we can have clear, a clear, clearer, plan of how we're going to move forward with clear expectations and rules and access right. as they demonstrate um, appropriate use and safe right. use. Right. Really important. And I think that parents struggle with that because they, they try to walk that line of how much do I allow my child to be exposed to this stuff and how much do I pull back and setting up rules and schedules and things like that. Joan, do you find that when you're teaching people about the new technology, do you find yourself also kind of getting into that area of moderation and and how to temper the amount of use the children are having 
Yeah. I mean, when I, because most of my work now is done online with people all over. And so I work with a lot of families to help them figure out which tech would be best for their kids and how to manage it. And so we talk a lot about that. And in fact, the first two sessions are typically with all the, you know, parents, anybody, it's always, I always work really closely with the parents and I always ask, how's it going, you know, and get everybody's perspective and say, you know, um, so I'm not a psychologist, but I do deal a lot with management of the tech um, and make sure that, you know, they understand how to minimize distractions and that, you know, hopefully the tech is not in the bedroom at night. And, you know, I give them a lot of tips and, and websites to go to for ideas and, tell them about Adam's program. And (laughs) (laughs) so I don't, you know, and I might go through the options on the phones and talk about the router and how you can limit access in different ways on different devices. Um, I don't like to spend too much time on that because I, they really hire me to help them figure out tech to improve literacy and learning and communication and that kind of thing. But it would be bad if I didn't deal with some of the other because it's it's really needed. Right. And, and you don't want kids just having, you know, free access. I mean, yeah, some just, can maybe, yeah. but, but, you know, um, most can't at a young age or shouldn't. Right, right. And <clears> I think we get caught up in this world of everybody has to have it. Parents struggling when to expose their kids to it. You know, a parent even just deciding at what age to give a phone to their child and mm-hmm. the, the pressures from their peers who have phones earlier and, you know, the need to catch up and be the same. I didn't have to deal with all this because my kids are old enough that it it wasn't a huge problem back then. It just wasn't, you know, and, um, but now it really is. And I'm at this stage where my daughter has, you know, I have grandkids now, you know, and they really want to minimize tech totally, you know, which is great, you know, even then there's times when you have to have it. You know, even mm-hmm. even for a one year old, you know, and my daughter's a pediatrician and she knows all this. She'll she'll let there be a little bit of tech for 15 minutes when they're desperate. And it, it really works magic, but it mm-hmm. has to be controlled. And I think that's OK, because everybody's human and needs a break. <laughs> you know, yeah, no. so it's all it's all weighing pros and cons. And you just want to be knowledgeable of options. Right, right. I mean, I want to go into a little bit about the parent aspect of it because, you know, it starts at the head. And I think the parents need to be educated on these things. And do you find yourselves, both of you, dealing with parents in that realm of, you know, we're working towards the the ability for the kids to be able to manage these things. But how do the parents manage all the things that we're talking about now? And Joan, you mentioned a little bit that you do work with the parents on this. And Adam, do you as well work with the parents on that? That is a huge part of my practice. Mm-hmm. And I often start off stating obvious things that people know, but are either just not actively thinking about, or there's some disconnect there that they just don't want to grab hold of. So the, the, the obvious place to start with parents is helping them think through what is the point of parenting mm-hmm. um, in a really basic way. That, and that is, at least from my opinion, is to raise a future adult. Right. is to not just keep them in a box and keep them safe. Obviously, that's all important to keep them safe and, and help them function now. But it's really about, again, ever forward. How do we help them manage themselves into the future with some type of pocket-sized computer? We can call it a phone if you want, but it's a pocket-sized computer with all the positives that we're going to talk about and with real, real dangers and concerns and impact on how our brains are 
reacting within our world. We're social animals. So adding in uh, a never-ending information source uh, and connections, good and bad, um, is both amazing and has real implications on evolution. Mm-hmm. And then I'll also state the obvious with parents that, yes, it is a big, important decision when you hand over that first phone to your child who's not an adult yet, and it is an adult device typically out of the box, so giving that some thought. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, especially now, after the pandemic, but I said this before in 2015, I know I said this in some recording you could probably find, that it's not just about the phone. The phone gives a phone number, and it's it's cool to have your own phone. The phone is just their own personal device that they somehow attach to, just like Back when I was 15, I liked having car keys in my hand. It felt cool. Uh, it wasn't my car. It was my dad's car, my mom's <laughs> car. But it felt cool to have my own, you know, that I was driving now at age sure. 16 or whatever. But the reality of what our kids um, and teenagers are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, especially young kids, is there's a ton of almost the exact same access they have on their new phone. They had years ago on a Chromebook, on a tablet, on a mm-hmm. um you know, so, you know, again, I don't want to overdo that, but just kind of thinking through, yeah, the phone give, makes it even more portable and more personal, which changes things. And they're never going back once they have the phone. So it is right. an important decision, but it's not as monumental in terms of the access that the child now likely has as we may think. Okay. So it leads perfectly into <laughs> the promise and the perils of technology, which is the topic that you'll both be co-presenting on the first day of the conference. And without giving the store away, I think we've already started to move into it. Could you share some more about what you'll be sharing that day? So Joan, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I think at a, at a basic level, what I'm going to be starting off with in the conference is three scenarios of types of students. And one of them uh, will cover students that have trouble, a student who has trouble reading. And then the second one is a student who has some trouble writing. And the third one is um, a student that has difficulty with executive functioning and the, you know, organizing and planning and follow through. And so the tools that I end up using are different depending on a person's age and expectations and, and their literacy levels and all kinds of things. But at a, at a, at you know, a basic premise is that parents should know that all of these devices, all smartphones, tablets, and computers of any type now can read aloud for free, read text aloud for free, and also can turn speech into text. And so I'll be I'll be talking about the different ways to do that on different devices. Um, and these these are fantastic tools for kids with dyslexia and dysgraphia and ADHD, but really they're great tools for everybody. You know, I mean, so uh, most of what I talk about these days are these mainstream built-in accessibility features on the devices that back in the day, we had to pay hundreds of dollars for special laptops and special software that kids would need to bring into the schoolroom, you know, if they had these diagnoses and they would feel, feel ostracized and different. And now nobody even needs to know. You can just put in earbuds and, you know, someone thinks you're listening to music. Right. So. I talk about a lot of the different ways to use what's already on your computer to help you stay more organized and efficient and free up time for you so that you can do what 
brings you happiness, mm-hmm. you know? And so a lot of times um, my, what I try to do when I work with the kids, depending on their age is I want to make technology their special power. Like they can be the cool one that knows how to do this stuff with tech that everybody has access to. Um, but kids don't necessarily think to use tech to help themselves. Like I'll, I'll, I'll be working with college students and high school students who are computer majors, maybe, you know, and I mean, my, my kids, I have two of them that got, um, you know, computer science degrees in college, and I'll know more about all the accessibility features. They, they don't even, they don't know about them really, because they've never had to use them, mm-hmm. you know, and I also get into the calendars and reminders and reducing distractions and reducing the notifications and setting, you know, do not disturb and just all mm-hmm. the stuff and organizing their drive, like Google Drive and color coding folders and and how to be efficient. Um, So I cover all of that. And I always love having parents at that first session because they usually don't think about these things either. And most of them don't know the world of Google, which most schools are using. And so a lot of them had no idea about Google Chrome extensions and read and write for Google and a lot of these different extensions that might not cost anything, but the school may be able to provide in a Chromebook setting and just one or two changes can really change the trajectory of the success of the student. Wow. So, so I'm going to be talking about a lot of the lowest hanging fruit. You know, I always, and I tell parents that I'm like, I'm going to go for the the lowest hanging fruit. What's the least expensive, easiest to implement that has the potential for the greatest change. And in the first two visits, that's generally what I do. Um, And then if people want more help, then we can get into special digital pens for, you know, there's pens now that you can scan a paper and it can automatically transfer the text into a Word document or Google Doc while reading it aloud, even in another language, if you want. I mean, it's unbelievable. Or a a really cool tool like Google Lens, which is free on all phones now. And you can use Google Lens. It's the Google app on a phone or it's built into the Android phones. It looks like a camera, a multicolored camera. And nowadays you can just point it at any text, like a sign, not on the computer, but in your environment. And you can take a picture of it through Google Lens and it will read out loud to you. So I had somebody that was going to pay a few hundred dollars for a reader pen because her student had trouble occasionally with some words. And I said, is there usually a phone with that student? And she said, yeah. And I said, just have them do, use Google Lens. It's free. You know, so a lot of these cool. tools are just cool to use. Yeah. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one tool that is really underutilized is um, captioning. Because a lot of kids with ADHD or who have auditory processing problems, if you're having, I mean, it's really best if you're having um, Zoom meetings or Google Meets or whatever, or watching movies free captioning is possible on any of these devices now. There's even, yeah. it's, a, it's in the Chrome settings, it's free. So um, you, you just have to enable it. And then if you're watching a movie on your computer and if it doesn't provide captions within the movie, you can just turn them on on your browser and they're there. So things like that, that are just sort of easy to implement what mm-hmm. I start with. Yeah, the captions have come in real handy for some of my clients. It's really great. And for me too. Because, you know, sometimes there's glitchy stuff that happens and it's there. So, But sometimes they're bad and distracting. Some people don't want them. So it's nice yeah. if it's up to the 
the user to decide if they want them or not. It's like interesting when you're watching a movie or something like that with someone else and I'm like cool with the captions and the other person's not cool with the captions, (laughs) but I can't hear it. So (laughs) yeah, thank you. Adam, uh, you want to share a little bit? uh, Yeah, I was just thinking as I I was listening, um, I often refer outside my office here, I have a ramp um, that probably was put in by law, um, which is the same law, special education law that we often Mm -hmm. talk about to give accessibility accommodation, we use a lot of these words, to right. make education accessible. Uh, and it's only, as I was listening to Joan, it, it occurs to me that it's almost like if you have a learning disability, like you have a built-in, whatever the ramp is, to <laughs> give you access literally in your pocket. Cool. You know, this is not an inexpensive device that I purchased, so it probably I paid for it uh, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in buying the phone. Or the Chromebook, or whatever, but it's but it's there, and you don't have to stand out, uh, as Tony was describing. You know, you just have your headphones on. No one has any idea in a you know eighth grade classroom what you're listening to. Yeah. Um, it could be something that's giving you access to your education, which is just phenomenally positive. Yeah, that's an amazing. Uh, benefit, talk about yeah. promises of technology, like <laughs> especially in education. It's just, and I'm I'm understating it, even the way I'm saying it uh, in that way. So. Just wanted to start there just to uh, piggyback on what it's huge. It's huge because of the social pressures. Yeah. So, you know, just to answer your question in terms of what I'm planning to uh, speak about, um, it's a lot of what I've already said, but I'm going to start off uh, on the on Friday program, which is for uh, licensed professionals, uh, three CU credits um, is that Friday course. Uh, that Joan and I are giving, and my piece, um, I think I'm starting. Um, so I'm going to start with an overview, uh, kind of an evolution brief uh, of how we got here, um, the shift um, over the last, you know, 60 or so years, uh, starting, you know, specifically around professional use and how technology has uh, helped uh, mostly uh, professionals do their jobs starting in the 1950s. They were the beginning of Pete and Beepers in Manhattan for physicians, right. um, pagers, uh, you know, and so I kind of touch, you know, some of that. I go a little bit uh, into research trends, just briefly, you know, pretty much, you know, very strong correlations between increased tech use uh, with all the promises and increased uh, feelings of Um, depression and attention problems and clinical anxiety, not just healthy adaptive anxiety, because that's what anxiety is. It's a prep signal. I'm going to kind of go through that overview uh, just to sort of set the stage. I often talk about reference points. Humans learn by doing with, humans learn by doing with practice. And we often look for patterns and patterns uh, repeat by definition. And therefore having some sense of where we started that's why I'm going through the overview first, uh, to have a reference point, to, uh, to have a, a starting place that I, we don't have to reinvent the wheel each day we wake up and the alarm goes off, um, that there's a reference point. So mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of talk through um, that uh, specifically in regard to professionals, psychologists, and other clinicians, and with a focus on how this is coming through uh, in an education setting. Um, both for teachers and for families, parents in particular. Um, I'll talk specifically about four diagnostic categories uh, and how the digital world has specific impact on um, those symptoms uh, in a clinical population, uh, ADHD, attention problems, clinical anxiety, mood disorders, 
and uh, autism spectrum disorder uh, specifically. So I'm going to go through that and, you know, offer at least a short version in this Friday program of my iParent 101 program to give clinicians and parents something practical um, to do differently, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, 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 one of the things that I work on with a lot of my patients is uh, leaning into a three-step process of predicting, not over-predicting, but predicting, having some sense of what's going to happen. Again, some reference point of last time I was in math class, this is how I felt, this is what happened. Having some idea, uh, step two, to recognize what I had predicted, some version of that I still i am feeling, it's happening, I'm experiencing it. And then step three, and this is the work, um, to try to have some proactive as possible, thinking ahead, plan to do something different. And so a lot of my uh, recommendations are, okay, given the struggle, given the concerns, what can we do differently? Mm-hmm. And some of that is trial and error. And some of that is I've already done the trial. And this is my recommendation. And let's see how this plays out for you, Jimmy, mm-hmm. or Johnny or whatever. And do you um, have that? Do they do they give input? You ask them for input on options? as well as like, well, I try to, uh, always the more I can get my patient or parents thinking about their specific situation and their lives and their strengths and weaknesses. That's where I always want to start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. sometimes when I have a very overwhelmed 12 year old in my office, uh, by definition, they don't know where to start. Sure. And so I start to, you know, help them scaffolding, right? Scaffolding is not it's a support. It's not doing it for them, but it's right. getting them to think and brainstorming, which again, AI is huge for brainstorming, you know, helping them think through what are some of these things that we can proactively do differently. And it doesn't mean it's going to be perfect and it doesn't mean what you predicted is definitely going to happen. Just like a weather prediction, it's based on some right. past experience, some models, some data that scientists make predictions based on, based upon. So, um, I, I try to be as matter of fact and basic, especially with kids, so they it's, so it's accessible to them. It's something they can do differently. They can take action to help themselves. Number one, get relief from that overwhelmed feeling, and sure. second, that they are moving forward again. Ever forward, we're moving <laughs> forward um, in a in a more effective, efficient, uh, productive way. Can I add one thing? Because I don't think I answered your question completely. I was sort of thinking about how I help families and kids. But in the presentation that we're doing, I'm also going to be covering, you know, for the professionals, showing them all these different tech options that I talked about, but then also bringing AI into it. And AI is in, in most of of the tools I use anyways. I mean, it's built in, but the generative AI, the chat GPT, and some of these other apps or programs... I'm going to talk about specific ones that I really like for teachers and how um, how they can make their lives so much easier to help with lesson planning and, you know, coming up with a lot of ideas. So I'm not only going to be talking about the tech that helps teachers and parents help students, but tech that helps teachers teach and, and other professionals do their work and come up with ideas and how they can use AI with the students to generate ideas I mean, I use I use ChatGPT and a few other things every day, mm-hmm. um, and I wow. think it's amazingly great within the context that I use it. 
I assume that there are going to be errors and I assume that it's not my end result. It just really gives me ideas or makes my writing a bit better, I think. Um, And I think it has enormous potential to help educators and therapists. Listening to Adam, it brought up the idea of, you know, when you mentioned the AI, you know, what is what is the future looking like? with AI. And maybe you could both speak to that a little bit, because I think that's obviously where we're headed and it's already benefiting us. Can we talk about the pros and cons of it? If you either one of you want to respond to that. <laughs> Adam, you want to go first or? Again, I, I was with AI. I'm going to yield to, to Joan, but my okay. <laughs> comment uh, is most of the digital world with all of the amazing promises where the, I guess, the perils come into me and the concerns really to be a little less dramatic than perils, um, you know, is, it is part the, of the title. So, you know, right, let's right. Go with it. <laughs> um, it's very poetic, but, um, right. uh, and, and potentially, um, valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I, I think in terms of concerns and strengths and weaknesses and pros and cons and the AI piece in terms of the concerns, and I'm a clinical psychologist by, by profession and training, so I think in terms of the clinical population where it's getting significant, you know, whatever the symptoms are, are clinically significant, getting in the per- interfering in the, in the person, the individual's life or the right. family's life. It's clinical. Uh, so that's the lens that I'm typically looking at. So just to be brief, um, you know, all of those diagnostic categories, the, the, the common thread of the impact of the digital world is that di- digital stimulation dysregulates. And for a uh, functioning uh, human at any age, it's, it's about learning to regulate, learning to be able to control, to regulate, to be able to think through, to, to activate your thinking part of your brain over through the emotions that are, that are there designed to interfere, mm-hmm. um, which again is the way our nervous system is designed over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution to help us say, to stay safe, to procreate, to, to, you know, keep our species going, um, again, stating the obvious, sorry. And so where AI comes in, uh, is that it's amazingly dysregulating and simultaneously really efficient and helpful in getting lots of things done. Uh, and humans, you know, especially in the last 20 ish years, as far as I can tell, and I'm, I'm right there step in step with this is I like multitasking. It feels really good hmm. to do lots of things and to have a day where I got this done and this done and this done. Sure. And sometimes all in the same time period. <laughs> and it's, but that's not a thing. We are multitasking, which is shifting our attention. Hmm. And the problem with some of at least what I've come to know in AI at least one of the problems is that it's so engrossing and amazing that it really pulls us in and pulls our children in who don't have a fully developed regulatory system. Right. The front part of your brain is not developed until 25 or 30, hmm. um, which we could talk about. How could that be possible for an adult animal on this planet to not have a fully developed brain until 25 or 30? Um, but the AI, amazing and efficient as it is, pulls us out of that way of thinking and helps and may, and encourages, if not forces, but encourages the, the individual to focus, if not hyper-focus, on what is that digital stimulation, whether mm-hmm. it's a learning app that is well-designed or a game 
or just some, you know, Instagram reel reels. If you're not familiar, or TikTok, all, you know, it's a constant flow of personally tailored, customized yeah. in, information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it doesn't hold the, the individual's attention, you, you scroll right. and the next thing will. And if that doesn't, you scroll. And mm-hmm. it, so it just, it, in terms of pulling, it holds our attention in ways that creates attention problems, anxiety, clinical anxiety for sure, mm-hmm. uh, isolation, um, again, down the line, um, at least with those four uh, diagnostic categories, uh, the correlation, at least, I'm not going to say causation, but the correlation is there. Mm-hmm. And you just can't scroll up in life. <laughs> if you don't like something that's happening in life, you can't scroll it off the page. Not, you know? not with some problematic outcome, typically. Yeah. Joan, do you want to respond? You yeah. Know, I mean, I, I, and I read, I was looking for the quote, and now I just lost it. But I think I read that, um, I mean, the purpose of school is to help people live a fulfilling adult life, right? And to to help people um, be independent. And I read 44% of the labor force is going to be affected by AI in the near term. I mean, a lot of... 44%? Yeah. Um, and that's a lot. We're in trouble. You know? <laughs> so I think that just really points out that because AI is going to be doing so, it's it's gonna it's not gonna make the labor force go away. It's gonna affect it's gonna affect the labor force. So I think that we need to assume that our students need to be AI savvy and tech savvy. It needs to be part of the education. And so the schools that are saying, you know, we're not allowing Chat GPT. I mean, to me, that's crazy because it's not going away, and there are all these other tools coming. So. Um, I think a lot of students and what, what parents are afraid of is that they're going to use it to cheat, right? To write essays and everything. Right. But I can I can tell now when things are written by ChatGPT, it uses a lot of the same language over and over again. And it um, also, you know, it has these confabulations or what, I, I don't remember the term, the uh, hallucinations, um, you know, makes things up. And so I think that we need to help our students be smart about AI and learn, um, learn when it's helpful and learn what you can do with it to help yourself and learn what not to do with it. Um, but there are tools like, you know, it can summarize really lengthy texts and, and some of the information might be wrong, but it might help you decide whether or not that text is good for a research project. Or I, I think people just have to be savvy how to use it. Um, and what instances, and then how to have a conversation with it. Um, and I sort of see AI, in fact, I have a, a webinar coming up in my practice in November, uh, and I called it AI as AT, you know, artificial intelligence as assistive technology, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of ways now that you can use it to overcome barriers. But it's also, it's hard for kids with special needs who might not be real articulate or who might have word retrieval problems um, they might not be able to benefit from AI as much as other students that write better because they can't write the prompts, Right. you know, at least as yeah. it is now, like they're not going to be able to access it. So I see education as trying to help them learn strategies to benefit from AI. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it's, it's a huge thing. And I think that um, schools are really going to have to look at it and, and teachers can greatly benefit from it for lesson planning and saving time so that they can spend more time interacting 
there's one really cool, I, I was just um, showing one of my students, you know, Khan Academy is wonderful for videos and to show different ways of doing math problems and now all kinds of different subjects and, and grades. Now it has, and I love Khan Academy Kids for young children. It's free and it's wonderful concepts and has books and it's about sharing and nature and getting along. And, you know, I, I like everything about Khan Academy stuff. Mm -hmm. And now there's something called Conmigo. K-H-A-N-M-I-G-O. And I started using it with somebody yesterday who needed help with math. And it doesn't give you the math answer, but what it does is it asks you, it suggests that you consider certain strategies uh, for your next step in the math problem. So it acts like a tutor. And it's the first AI that I've seen that I think really has potential to be helping, um, you know, guide, guide the student I was really impressed with it. So I think we just have to keep an open mind and watch for tools that, that can be helpful. Right. Do we have to be concerned about the child's ability to discern what they're interacting with with the AI? How do they discern what's what's real and what's not um, as far as, you know, facts and, and, and things along those lines? I mean, that particular app? Yeah, well, not particularly just AI in general, as far as oh yeah, I mean, I, I think, and I think kids can become overly dependent on it too. We yeah. want kids to be able to think for themselves, mm -hmm. and if you become overly reliant on it, um, you know, you're not using your own brain to come up with unique ideas and right. to write well. Um, you know, you can become overly dependent. But I, I do think we just like now. I mean, now we have to teach kids about how to be smart about what they see online, right? Written about online and don't believe everything you see and confirm it with other sources that you um, rely on. The thing about Conmigo is it, it's well-regulated. It's not just generative AI that pulled a lot of information from okay. nowhere. They, they put in all their information. Okay. Um, it, so I was impressed with that. Yeah, that's more positive for sure. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, Adam, on the iParenting program that you have, and maybe at least how people can connect with you to learn more about it or to work with you. Well, that's that's easy. iParent101.com is my website. Okay. Uh, and you can email me directly from there with questions. I built the program initially from lots of families in my office back in 2005 through seven or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's all based on real life families. And then I've been traveling around uh, the country, at least I was traveling more before pa the pandemic, just getting back into that a little bit now, but open to it. Uh, and I built the more recent programs based on lots of Q&As um, in large auditoriums around the country based on parents' real questions. So, um, you know, info at iparent101.com is a direct email to my computer um, and okay. please, you know, I can't always respond as quickly as I'd like, but um, I am a full-time clinician. So um, mm -hmm. that is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to um, keep my hands around all of these different pieces as best I can. Okay. Um, the only other thing I would say that sort of is an underlying premise of the iParent program and my clinical work, and I think a lot of what we've been talking about this morning, is this concept of balance. And people, you know, I think in the last couple of years, not that it's a new word, but it's become a buzzword, at least in my my world, uh, where everyone talks about balance and how, especially with the pandemic, we were off balance or out of balance, and balance has become the sort of elusive destination that we, you know, somehow have to reach or, or strive for. And you know, at least my sense is that that's that sounds good, but that's not really what balance is. 
Balance is not a destination. Balance is a constant state of adjustment. And so part of my program is, is based on, again, if you think about behavior modification or a level system where you behave a certain way and you get some level of access, you can keep doing that. You get more and more access. Right. If you change your behavior mm-hmm. in a way that you know is not productive or is against whatever the structure of the program is, you get less access or you get less privilege or whatever. And so if there's an up and down, there's an adjustment built into that. And so the analogy work with kids. So I often talk about metaphor and, and, and analogy. So the analogy is, you know, if you were learning to ride a bike, which requires balance, right? A two wheel bike, mm-hmm. you're on your handlebars, you know, you're adjusting, you're not balanced when you're perfectly straight. You're going to have to go up a hill. There's a turn, you, ha- you know, there's new information, new challenges, new everything uh, in every moment of time. So you have to adjust. And so the balance comes in as you adjust, and it's a constant state of adjustment, sometimes mm-hmm. overwhelmingly so, but it's still adjusting either way. Right. And if you've been tracking what I've said this morning, that fits with this idea of, of learning to regulate mm-hmm. and how the digital stimulation purposely, by design, listen to the uh, Surgeon General last May, I'm sure he said it since then, he was on CNN, you know, he's talking about how our kids are, you know, it's not a fair fight. You know, we've got mm-hmm. multi-billion dollar tech companies designing uh, software and technology to pull our attention. Right. Um, and there's a lot of marketing dollars behind that. So um, not to get overly cynical, but um, <laughs> so, again, it's really about adjustment and regulation um, as we move forward. So let's talk then about executive functioning and the impact of technology on executive functioning, because it seems Absolutely. to fit perfectly here. So again, uh, whoever wants to go first, maybe you can give uh, your insight and your your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, I would say in terms of executive functioning, just like Adam said, I think attention spans are, I don't know if you said this exactly, but attention spans are getting reduced. We want to be entertained and we want instant gratification in this world. And so I think that kids really need need to learn how to work at things over a period of time and and break big chunks into you know they're not being entertained all the time when they when they're studying they need to sit back and come up with good strategies to maximize learning and and studying and remembering and so um, we're so easily distracted by all of our technologies that we need to you know um, minimize, uh, really make a conscious effort to minimize distractions and to set timers so that we have sustained attention and get in the zone for good learning and then take breaks like the Pomodoro technique, you know, study for half an hour, take a five minute break or whatever works best for you and have physical activity in your break. So I work a lot with families on this, you know, like how get off of the tech and, and have sustained focus for a while. And then, you know, I work a lot with calendars and having different colors in the calendar um, and reminders, you know, so I'm really practical at using tech to stay organized because I think that this, you know, all tech isn't bad and all screen time isn't bad, um, but our kids want this instant gratification and sometimes they lose their ability to focus so much easier. So I'm trying to use to show them how to be on tech, but maintain their focus. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's no, no. generally yeah. what I do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and parents like it too, because parents usually don't realize that every device has some kind of do not disturb. And every, you know, like all the, there are a lot of features built in that people don't realize are there. Right. Um, that yeah, are I mean, I, I'd love to hear more about those. I don't know if you want to speak to any more of those features. Certainly love to, to hear as much. Yeah, about I mean, even, I mean, one, one really good feature that I, I think um, people of all ages benefit from, if you're trying to read an article online and you get all these pop-ups and ads and everything, it's infuriating. Sometimes you click on the wrong thing and you just lose track and there, right. all this is vying for your attention. And so um, what you can do is if you're on Edge or Safari, there are built-in readers that you can click on. It's usually like a big A, little A or a few horizontal lines. It's different on different devices, but instantly all of that clutter goes away and you can um, make the text as big or as small as you want it to be. And it's just so much easier to focus. If you're on Chrome, um, there's a sort of a complicated way to get to one, but I usually use the, um, I have it used to be called Mercury Reader and it changed its name. I have it right here. It's called Postlight Reader now. So whenever I'm reading an article now, I just click on my Postlight Reader Google Chrome extension and it gets rid of all the clutter. And um, it's like, that's just a little tip for everybody. So if you're on your phone and you're in Safari, click on the big A, little A, it's up in the address bar and you get rid of all those ads. I mean, that's just a, one little tip that's can really make a difference for people. But I'll be yeah. talking about more strategies for that. Okay. Okay. That's great. Adam, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to take a, a, a little bit of a side uh, step mm-hmm. and just talk a little bit about executive functions in, in a little bit more of a general sense. Because again, it's another, certainly in my career, I don't know if it's a buzzword or whatever, but it does get talked about a lot in mm-hmm. relation to ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety disorders, um, and, and other diagnostic categories. And so just to be clear for people listening, what, what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about executive functions? You know, there's the classic, um, you know, there, it's the functions of the prefrontal cortex, the, you know, the, the, that part of the brain doesn't develop until you're 25 or so. So the typical 14-year-old, um, just like the typical 5-year-old, is not going to have the same abilities um, across the board as, you know, a full-on, fully developed adult. But what we're talking about is prioritizing, you know, certain, ta- you know, cognitive tasks, ability mm-hmm. to prioritize, ability to sequence, which is different. Uh, sequencing is uh, the order versus the order based on importance, which is prioritizing. Uh, sh- ability to shift attention, as I said earlier about multitasking. Um, ability to inhibit, holding yourself back, regulating. Um, so that's just a couple of them, but they're specific things that have significant impact on our ability to, to run our lives on a daily basis and with clear and specific impact on, at least for students, their ability to learn. Right. Um, and so you add in digital stimulation. And as I said earlier, the digital stimulation, um, you know, pulls our attention by design and pulls us to Mm -hmm. focus or not focus and it takes advantage in some ways of how our nervous system is designed um, over hundreds of thousands of years. The sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, is the alarm center. And so if you think about how these notifications, Joan mentioned notifications, turning them on or off, like that's a huge thing that people generally don't think about. And right. by default, 
the, the tech companies have notifications on, on, you know, by design, by default. Sure. And you have to go in, at least my recommendation is, and be intentional. You want to be notified. You want to be interrupted. Mm-hmm. You want that app to be your, to have access to your priority, right? If I'm working and all of a sudden something pops up in my face that's red, that, you know, my visual nerve is going to go to that. Mm-hmm. And if there's a beep or there's, you know, that's just the way I'm designed and you are too, right. um, to react to a uh, different stimulation in our world and the apps, you know, that's just not new. And I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn, um, take advantage of that. They pull our attention. Um, there's a documentary years ago called like, I think Indieflix, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's out there. And they talked all about, they interviewed all the tech companies and Google whistleblowers and Facebook people and how these these apps are designed. And really the bottom line, the takeaway for me many years later was that we, our children, are the product. It's, it's the marketing dollars that it's our attention. And what mm. we're focusing on is the product mm. that is being sold, um, not the actually not the dish soap or whatever that pop, right. pops up right. as, as the ad. That makes so much um, sense. So, uh, you know, so again, this is all about executive functioning and how we are being pulled and, uh, and where our attention goes and which is disruptive, interfering with things that I think if you ask Jimmy, uh, what is your priority right now? Jimmy would take a beat and say, this is my priority, which is probably accurate. But in the moment when something pops up and pulls his attention and there's a immediate either feel good or some some kind of relief or something immediate. Mm-hmm. Joe mentioned that earlier. It's the it's the immediacy of the dopamine um, right. that pulls. It's not just the certain tasks have more dopamine for sure. Just like chocolate cake has more dopamine um, or elicits more uh, dopamine right. in the synapse than you know vegetables uh, potentially. With ADHD. Uh, those those students and adults have fantastic attention, really, for something that they're interested in and like. It's more of a management of attention. It's a misnomer. Right. So, exactly. it's, yeah, and so they can't manage their attention, so they get pulled away so easily from these notifications. I was just, I was just going to give a quick plug, uh, uh, plug for uh, Dr. Cliff Sussman, who's a psychiatrist uh, local here in the D.C. Metro. And what I just described in terms of the immediacy of the dopamine um, I have to give him that reference because um, he was the one who explained that to me. Um, and for years, I had this idea of dopamine and it, you know, things that give more dopamine or or bring up more dopamine in our, in our synapse is what pulls our attention. And I believe that is true, but it's really about the immediacy of how quickly we feel that good feeling, that and the lack of delay, as Joan was saying earlier, that pulls us, it pulls our attention, um, which again, you know, in the 1980s, not to end on a morbid note, but like, you know, the crack, co- crack cocaine epidemic, just as another metaphor, was because of the immediacy of how quickly the crack, the, the free-based crack cocaine mm-hmm. hit the brainstem, brainstem right. was different than other drugs at the time. And that's mm-hmm. why it became so crazily addictive and dangerous and disruptive. Um, it was the immediacy. And right. that's, that's part of what, you know, we've been talking about. AI and the digital stimulation being so efficient in helping us and with brainstorming and with so many life tasks, life skills, 
um, and, it, and it, even on the positive end, the promises, it's the immediacy of how it helps us. And on the peril side, it's also the immediacy, how quickly we get pulled, whether it's a good, good or bad. Talk a lot about compromises and then mm-hmm. trying to make good compromises. There's still a trade-off in the compromise, but right. trying to, to think things through and be as intentional, which requires thought, um, not just feeling. And so, by the way, there are apps out there where, you know, you had asked earlier, you know, beyond, you know, built-in apps with Google or iPads like Guided Access that's been around for years where it limits uh, the phone and the iPad. And I'm sure there's tablet versions of this. I just don't know the names because I'm pretty Apple-focused, but Joan might, um, where you limit the app to just that one, I mean, the phone or the device to just that one app, which, again, with the time limit, it, you know, so that's a way of, you know, um, of helping your child or your student focus. Um, uh, and there's other apps coming out now where they have found workarounds um, <clears throat> to, to require the student, you know, the parent or the teacher can set it up where the parent has to, um, where the, the child has to learn before they play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it's designed where you can set it up proactively where, you know, you do a half an hour of Con Kids, you do a half an hour of Duolingo or whatever your homework is on that app, those apps, and everything else is grayed out. And then once you clear those, um, automatically then whatever your parent, the parent or the teacher set up could then have the access then um, opens up and you could watch YouTube or but everything while you're doing your work for, you know, encouraging, forcing, whatever. Um, the child to focus. Um, I'm, I, I, I see a lot of promise in those kind of apps coming out. Do you agree, John? Yeah, I don't know what app does. Is, what does that? Uh, there's a new app called Carrots and Cake. And I don't think there's a guided access equivalent for Android because I've looked. And I don't, I don't think that there is one where you can lock somebody in an app and they can't get out unless they have a password right. or you give them a timer. And that works for music. Like you might have a teenager, oh, I'm going to go take a shower and listen to music, but you know they're up there, you know, gaming or on Snapchat or whatever. You go, oh, you want to listen to music? Great. I like music. Here's music. And they can click around and change the songs and whatever. And But they can't, the home button or whatever the app, the devices might not have a home button anymore. They can't scroll out of it for whatever wow. the time limit is. And again, wow. that's not new. That was in my mm-hmm. original iParent program back yeah. Since iOS 6, I think it came uh, out. I was about to say <clears throat> uh, 5 or 6, yeah. Um, yeah. Not, you know, talking 2013-ish, 2012. Um, so it seems like when you think about the evolution of technology and, you know, there's always transitions into the new technology. And so, you know, when phones became big and tablets became big, you know, I think parents weren't prepared for it. And, I mean, maybe you agree or disagree. It seems to me that parents weren't prepared for it. And... Now, as AI bleeds into um, our world, it seems to be another, we're on the doorstep of another transition time. Teachers, parents, people who are in the education field, you know, we talk about the importance of them being prepared to be able to, to educate the children and how to manage this stuff. How do we, how do we manage the parents and the, and the teachers in preparing them? Can we do better than we've done in the past? Is there any thought on that? and how we could do that. I just know that I'm trying to stay on top of it and I attend a lot of webinars on it and I'm trying to use it and um, you know, and I'm making a presentation on it. And I, I think we just have to try to keep up 
which is hard. Yeah. Um, but through professional development and just, you know, try try to learn with our kids because the kids are going to learn it fast. You know? So we got to try to stay one step ahead. That's right. what I've always said for a long time. I want to be one step ahead of my kids, you know, and um, it's hard. It, it is hard. Yeah. We usually go to the kids to teach you how to do this stuff these well, days. More and more, for sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I think your question speaks to you know, this idea of being prepared. You know, so when I hear the word prep, I think of healthy, adaptive, protective, adaptive, I'll say that twice, anxiety. Anxiety is a prep signal by design. It's the alarm center of our brain, or it's the signal from the alarm center, the amygdala, telling us that we need to react to something. So as you just described, um, parents over these last, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years, um, you know, the reference points are different. As I said earlier, my reference point to the 1980s is different than um, my child's reference point to the early 2000s. It's a very different world then, and it's a different world now. And I would use that prep signal, not just to get overwhelmed by the anxiety and take the easy, somewhat easy bait to go into a whack-a-mole kind of, I got to control this and I got to control this. And that's, that's not going to work. And that didn't work 10 years ago when I was talking more about, you know, this, the difference between digital immigrants, because we weren't born into this culture, myself included, this is all new versus our kids were digital natives. That was a big sort of, again, buzzword. And um, I don't know who originally coined that. It wasn't me, but you know, it was a valid way of understanding and feeling more prepared uh, as we were trying to educate and uh, provide safe um, landscapes for our families. And so now, you know, I, I move away from that and I'm, I'm more in this idea that, yeah, we have to be prepared. And the more we can, you know, expect the unexpected and, you know, and just lean into, as Joan was saying earlier, these are digital skills that we all, especially our, the younger humans on this planet, are going to need more and more building up uh, in, in the curriculums, um, not overwhelming our children, but having clear, these are digital skills that are going to be required both for jobs and for learning and all, all aspects of life mm-hmm. and not being just so afraid of it because we didn't have it when we were younger. Um, right. And, you know, that's the idea of technology, that it's, you know, you keep moving forward. And there's a lot of bad informa- information out there, but there's an information flow that is accessible and we want to use it for good, increasing right. the good compromises. And so just because you feel nervous that you don't understand what your child is doing, use that signal to find a way to have a dialogue with your child or with your student. Yeah. Use that signal, the, even the anxiety that the parent might feel, um, not to run and hide, but to mm-hmm. lean into it and be honest with your child. Like, I, I don't get this. Um, I'm doing my best to keep you safe and all that. There's, you know, not to be overly like, oh, there's scary people out there. But depending on the kid, there's scary mm-hmm. people out there and they have computers. Mm-hmm. And um, we all do. And... Um, and, and, and allowing this dialogue, and that's a big piece of my program, which is to force the dialogue. You know, having parental controls, even if they don't work, and unfortunately, even the Apple stuff that I recommend is highly, highly glitchy. 
mm-hmm. and uh, they know it. And I've talked to Apple for years, and it's <laughs> been documented, well documented, for a good 10 years ago or whenever family sharing started and screen time. They're aware that, it, that it's well designed, but it doesn't work consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that I'm not that I'm okay with it, but I'm okay with that because when it doesn't work, you should the parent should be aware of that. They could see that the child has been on Instagram for four hours when they set a time limit for an hour. Mm-hmm. That's a good reason to have a discussion about. Hey, right. I've noticed you've been on still. Is the app limit not working again? I'm not trying to be over annoying about it, but let's have a dialogue of what's working and what's not. Mm-hmm. So we are moving forward in a way that is supporting scaffolding the student learning and and seeking out their information so they could take care of themselves. Right, right. Right. It's not adversarial. It's more like you're coaching them and you're helping them, you know, teachers and all the professionals. It's 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 all with the effort of helping the student to say stay stay safe and learn. If it does get adversarial, which at least in my office often families come to me because it has been adversarial. I use that as part of the signal that there's something problematic emerging here because it doesn't have to be adversarial, at least on, on, on the surface. Right. We're not trying to do something that goes against the child's development. It's healthy for the child to want to connect with their social group and to find a social group and to, and to learn and to, manage difficulty and be resi- learn resiliency and grit uh, to be able to push through um, a- a layers of challenge. Um, we learn the most through struggle. Um, and, right. and so some of, you know, Joan had mentioned earlier, like AI is amazing for brainstorming, but it also on the, on the peril side um, could set up a situation where the student could be more passive and things it's too easy and it's, things are being handed to them. Um, I had a cliff notes when I was in high school and I could have easily just gotten through just by reading that. Um, you know, it's not brand new of uh, this assistive, uh, technology and whether it's on paper or digital form. Um, mm-hmm. but it, you know, this is at a different layer and it pulls our attention in a different way. Right. I think it's almost a, a rewiring for parents about what parenting is and how we're raised to think of parenting as this dominant controlling thing and a lot of people have figured that out and they communicate great with their kids but a lot of people haven't and just the idea of being able to communicate creating that relationship creating that trust to where your child feels comfortable being able to talk about what's going on for them i think that's what you're talking about right it's being able to have that back and forth in a comfortable way just a respectful communication back and forth easier said than done but that would absolutely the the premise of my program mm-hmm. is to create that landscape, to have the conversations, to have some guardrails that, you know, especially for younger children or even adolescents who are going to push the boundaries and not see the problem or the potential danger, uh, you know, going on some of these video chat websites that are free out there and, you know, um, where you're, you know, a young child that has been like a, I'm part of all these news groups on Facebook and whatever. And lately, I've, you know, that not that it's new, but there's all these, been, there's been a spike in um, young children going on different websites where they're seeing all kind of inappropriate things. And even though there's a little disclaimer that says you have to be 18 and whatever, but, you know, most kids don't pay any attention to that and there's no regulation there. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, so being aware that we're not just going to stop our children. That's not the goal. It's to join as best we can and not be just frustrated and, you know, just, just put our heads in the sand and say, all right, well, let's assume this is not going to be a problem until it is. Right. Um, that these are predictable, as I said earlier, predictable uh, struggles that we are going to have as families and as educators that we can do something about um, to support them, to scaffold them into their young adulthood. I've been having such a great time listening to the two of you. This has been uh, I, I just such a, it's a, such a delight really to listen to you and interact with the two of you. I've learned so much and I can't wait to tune into the conference to hear what you have to say. Um, I did want to ask one last quick question and I'm sure it could be an entire podcast. COVID's effect the remote learning on kids with special education. And I know it could be a long answer, but is there a way maybe you could just kind of give your perspective and some thoughts on on that whole thing and, and maybe some of the ramifications of that period and what's happening now? Joan, could you go first? Well, I, can, I can probably do a little bit quicker my, my perspective. So, um, I mean, COVID was awful and I had a lot of family loss and it was awful. So I'm not, I don't want to make light of any of this, but it really got people a lot more tech savvy. It may it gave parents a different view of what their kids are doing at home and how skilled or unskilled they were and how, how much support they might need or um, can you know benefit from. I, I think it was really eye-opening for a lot of parents. And I think that some kids did better. Some kids that aren't as socially inclined and that really some really benefited from the tech na- tech nature of things so that, you know, with dyslexia, dysgraphia, I mean, some of them, it wasn't so paper-based. And so it was really terrific for a lot of them. Right. Um, but I think that there was a lot of loss of learning. I mean, I'm really seeing it now. So my business is busy as ever because parents are really struggling to help their kids catch up. Okay. Um, and so I, I, I'm so grateful that kids are back in school now. And I think that there was a lot of um, a lot of speech and language and social skills that really didn't get addressed. And so there's a real backlog of need. Mm-hmm. But I think people are more comfortable with tech now because they had to be. And so it's much more readily accepted to be using these different technologies as assistive technology. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of parents that really really see the need, but now the kids are back in the classroom and sometimes it's back to paper-based and they're really frustrated (laughs) because they wish that they could have access to a lot of the digital tools again. That's a quick answer. No, it's great. Adam, do you have uh, any thoughts? I don't necessarily need to add too much. Um, On my end, you know, I, I talk to a lot of school um, administrators and teachers and I, I think that we all as a society did our best to modify and adjust. And, um, and even with the effort there, I think there was a real gap in adjusting curriculums and to the digital world to everything is online. Now, again, I could state the obvious as Joan alluded to that it was amazing that this pandemic coincided awful as it was coincided with uh, a leap in technology to allow for virtual learning at the level that uh, took place. But with that, um, in my opinion, as a non-educator, um, there w- there was a struggle, if not a gap, as I said, to bridge 
uh, the curriculum that was pre-pandemic to what and what was expected of our children, um, especially in middle school. Um, you know, and, well, I could probably say at any age, kindergartners, I'm sure it must have been a, just amaz- amazingly difficult. Um, but, you know, there was a gap there in terms of what was expected with accommodations, with all of these pieces in place. It's still the amount of education loss uh, will be a ripple effect um, ongoing. Um, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but for, for a while. Okay. Um, and, you know, on the more on the mental health and the escape into the digital world, the amount of overstimulation of just hours and hours of staring at a screen. Um, I'll speak for myself. I was incredibly grateful that given the technology, I was able to do at least some aspect of my job during the height of the pandemic, moving to telehealth. Um, But it was not the same and it's still not the same. It's amazing that we could have this conversation right now. You're in New York, you're in Maryland. Um, you know, it, it, and it's pretty seamless and mm-hmm. we're having a conversation as if we're in the same room. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. Um, um, and I don't have to clean my place. Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, but you know, so anyway, you get my point that it's, it's amazing and the concerns and the education loss and the impact on how we cope, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's a new world now and the level of avoidance that we have access to um, without even realizing what we're avoiding um, just to put on my psychologist hat just for a minute here as we end uh, is, is noteworthy. You've given me a lot of time today, both of you. I really appreciate it. It's been all worth it and I'm excited to see the, the conference and your presentations and I hope this is, gotten people excited to hear more from the two of you. Um, There's one more thing I just wanted to make sure to um, say is that I do offer free 15-minute consults for any teachers, psychologists, parents, anybody that's interested. Um, If they go to my website, innovativespeech.com, they can just get that. And I do a lot of webinars at theymaynotknow.com. That's where I advertise all that. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you. If oh, you to just want to make sure to get that out there because yeah. a lot of parents just have, and, and educators, they just want to talk to somebody mm-hmm. and get an idea of what to try. So there's no pressure to hire me, but just to help. I really love doing that. I do about two, two or three of those calls a day wow, and it keeps wonderful. me on my toes and it helps me just stay in touch with everybody with different kinds of needs. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I want to encourage people to go to wegdiamonds.com to register for the conference so they can hear the two of you. And I know, Adam, you're going to be giving a keynote on the second day. I encourage people to go to that. And um, I just want to thank you both for your time. It's been great. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. My pleasure to have you. And I wish you all the best at the conference. Take care. Okay. Have a great day. thank you again for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join me each week to hear about topics new to you or close to your heart. I hope this podcast might inspire you to face your days more confidently, stirring a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, and outpouring of goodness and positive role modeling for your children while remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Ed Rising, 
and on my website, specialedrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. You can contact me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching through my email, specialedrising at gmail.com, or my contact page is on Facebook or my website. If you'd like to share some of your own success stories with the audience, please send them to my email. Let's show the world what's possible. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising. (music) 